welcome to a community-supported and guest-produced edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Daily Show, On the Media, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Tom Hartman, The New York Times, The Young Turks, and Randy Rhodes. Let's talk about Iraq. We've heard what President Bush has to say. He says things are going well. Condi Rice says things are going well as well. Dick Cheney says things are going well. So, it's, it's hard to believe them. The credibility, I wish there was someone left in the White House with some credibility. Maybe someone who had no access to uh, the intelligence, who isn't in any of the meetings. Maybe somebody who only hears about Iraq after uttering the phrase, hey, how was your day, honey? There you go. It's Laura. What do you what do you think about what's happening, Laura? Many parts of Iraq are stable uh, now, but uh, of course, the what we see on television is the one bombing a day that uh, discourages everybody. That one pesky daily explosion. That we see on TV. It's so discouraging to see that on TV. But, Laura, you do realize that it's not just happening in the TV, right? It's actually happening. It's so discouraging. I know, I know how discouraging it is for you to watch it. You know where else it's it's somewhat discouraging there? Uh, At the site of the bombing. You know, it's funny, that, 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 that one bombing a day is just, you know... How we let that bum us out is just, you know. <laughs> Although I remember growing up in Jersey, I remember, uh, I guess at that time, the recommended daily allowance of bombings was, uh, what do you call it, zero. <laughs> that was the weekly, monthly, and yearly recommendations, but, uh, well, you know what they say, a bombing a day. Uh, keeps the doctor away because the educated middle class has left the country. Against the backdrop of President Bush's State of the Union address this week, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee busied itself repudiating the president's chief initiative. The senators voted for a resolution denouncing the so-called surge of 21,000 troops as a last-ditch effort to stem the violent chaos in Iraq, and the press was all over the controversy. On Iraq, a key Senate committee votes to oppose sending more troops. And it was a deeply emotional debate in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee today, echoing the turmoil across this nation. Today, the Senate took the first step in officially rejecting the principle of sending more troops to Iraq. Saying Bush's plan to increase troops in Iraq is not in the national interest. But while the debate was raging inside the Beltway, according to Washington Post online columnist and military affairs expert 
William Arkin, the actual surge was underway and virtually ignored by the media. Here's the fact. The United States has deployed a brigade of the 82nd Airborne Division forward to uh, Baghdad. That is part of the surge. The United States has extended the tours of a number of Army and Marine Corps units in Baghdad. That's part of the surge. And the United States has deployed the first of two new Marine Corps battalions in western Iraq from uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. That's part of the surge. And hardly any of this has been reported in the mainstream news media. Does secrecy have something to do with it? Media typically refrain from reporting troop movements for fear of giving the enemy too much information. Well, in this particular case, I don't think we have this kind of troop movement secrecy problem. It has been the case that the Defense Department and the Army and the Marine Corps have been somewhat modest in announcing these deployments. But I get the impression, Bob, that it's more the case that the news media's mind is elsewhere. However, we've been, you know, in this war for four years now, and there has not been a huge amount of coverage to date about troop movements and deployments. Uh, Why should uh, NBC News, for instance, want to take pictures of a new battalion hitting the ground in Baghdad? The president of the United States has announced a change in strategy key to that change is an augmentation, a reinforcement of U.S. forces, and it's part of the story, period. Obviously, I I defer to you because of your extremely broad expertise on these matters, I mean, uh, down to the very smallest uh, units. But is it possible that you are such a military wonk that the story has not caught up to your granular understanding? because really nothing has happened yet for anybody to report. Well, if you're going to give me credit for being such a wonk, then you should also ask me what my intuition is. And my intuition is we are never going to see a significant difference as a result of these 21,500 additional troops being sent to Iraq, because this surge, this image that we have of reinforcement of U.S. forces, of Marines storming the beach and paratroopers falling from the skies is never going to occur. We are dribbling in our forces, splitting them up amongst many different places, keeping uh, tired troops in Iraq who are ready to come home. In fact, we are hostage to what the Iraqis will do, and that was always the plan, and the surge, to some degree, is merely a political smokescreen for the Bush administration to buy more time. Dude, you buried the lead. The story, then, if I'm hearing you correctly, is not that the news media as a group have taken their eye off the ball of the movements on the ground, but they've failed to detect that the vaunted surge is not a surge at all. Is that it? Well, look, we have to get through the mountain of Valentines, which have been written about General Petraeus, the new commander in Iraq. We'd have to get through the mountain of words that have come out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and other congressional committees to be able to determine that they actually care about this question. So, yes, you know, you might be right. I might have buried the lead myself in questioning the surge. but. 
There are so many people out there, Bob, who are writing about this from opinion. And what I'm trying to do is say, hey, let's actually look at what's going on on the ground and ask ourselves the questions, first of all, whether or not these additional troops are there, what they're doing, and whether they're going to have a difference. The military itself wants to dampen expectations about the surge, that they're not putting out the big press releases that say the 82nd Airborne has arrived in Baghdad and the third of the sixth Marines has arrived in Al-Anbar. And why is that the case? Maybe it's the case that the military itself doesn't want to increase those expectations that this change is going to make any difference because doing so would then make them responsible for the ultimate failure. All right, Bill. Uh, as always, a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me on, Bob. Bill Arkin is a columnist for Washington Post Online and is a fellow at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Gallup poll suggests nearly two-thirds of us want withdrawal from Iraq by the end of next year. Why is the House of Representatives debating a non-binding resolution that barely amounts to wagging a reproachful finger at a president, a president who's not even required to watch while that finger is wagged? Our fifth story in the countdown. The answer, in part, a dear colleague letter written to their colleagues by Republican hawks Peter Hoekstra and John Shadegg. In it, they say the liberal mainstream media has failed to educate the country about why losing in Iraq is unacceptable. They also say that if Republicans, quote, let Democrats force us into a debate on the surge or the current situation in Iraq, we lose. Those Democrats saying that the non-binding resolution is just the first step in a campaign to pressure the president to change course and end U.S. military involvement in Iraq. No, really, they mean that. That the House is debating at all would seem to be an embarrassment to the Senate. Debate there still blocked by a Republican filibuster. The GOP might wish to consider the latest polling from the folks at Gallup showing that the American public likes to see its elected officials debating the more non-binding the measure, the better, apparently, by 51% to 19%. Those surveyed placing the blame for the Senate stalemate firmly on Republicans. 63% want a timetable by which troops will leave Iraq by the end of 2008. 57% wanting Congress to put a cap on the number of troops sent out to fight. Yet the message sent by voters in the poll is nothing if not mixed. 58% against denying funding for additional troops. Interpreting those numbers enough to drive anyone to tears, even the Republican leader in the House, John Boehner, said to have gotten emotional this morning at the words expressed by his colleague Sam Johnson, recounting his seven years spent at a North Vietnamese prison camp, an aide saying off the record not to overdo this, that Mr. Boehner cries at almost everything. Boehner gathering himself slightly by the time he addressed the cameras. The debate itself actually starting around lunchtime. The House only Iraq war vet, Democrat Patrick Murphy of Pennsylvania, among those speaking, the first speaker appropriately 
oddly enough, the new speaker. The American people have lost faith in President Bush's course of action in Iraq, and they are demanding a new direction. No longer will Congress stand by while the president wages a war that defies logic, common sense, and human decency. This week, we shall take a stand. This week, we tell this administration, enough is enough. You can't claim support for our troops without supporting their mission, Mr. Speaker. Again, you cannot claim to support our troops without supporting their mission. It's hard to imagine a group less capable of making tactical decisions about specific troop deployments than 535 members of Congress. The resolution today is about the exact number of troops. Will the one tomorrow or next week be a vote on which block in Baghdad to target? We cannot create a stable Iraq when the Iraqis themselves don't seem to want it. Let's not leave our finest young men and women literally stranded in an Iraqi maze. Let's make this resolution the first step on their journey home. And I think it's going to be received by friend and foe alike as the first sound of retreat in the world battle against extremists and terrorists. From my time serving with the 82nd Airborne Division in Iraq, it became clear that in order to succeed there, you must tell the Iraqis that we will not be there forever. Yet, three years now since I have been home, it's still Americans leading convoys up and down Ambush Alley and securing Iraqi street corners. We must make the Iraqis stand up for Iraq and set a timeline to start bringing our heroes home. War is hell, but sometimes it's necessary if you don't stand up to a bully or a tyrant, then they'll push and they'll push and they'll push until you have to fight. And if you wait too long, the fight is so severe that you really get hurt. It's better to whip them at the, at the beginning than wait until later on when the cost is much, much, much higher. Hey, what do you know, Mr. Burton, not on the golf course today. Time now to call in our own Jonathan Alter, senior editor at Newsweek magazine. John, good evening. Hi, Keith. What's going on here? Are uh, Representatives uh, Schadegg and, and Hoekstra succeeding in hamstringing the Democrats, Democrats on this, or are the Democrats still tiptoeing around in this misguided standard issue political belief that if you just do it right, when you stand for re-election, you can get 100% of the vote? Well, I, I think what the Democrats are trying to do here, Keith, is just get on the scoreboard with something. So even though a non-binding resolution uh, isn't very satisfactory for uh, their constituents or maybe even for the American people as a whole, it at least lays down a marker. It's a vote of no confidence in the surge. And you have to start somewhere if you oppose this war. So they've stripped down this uh, resolution. It's only 97 words long. It's very simple. And it puts the House of Representatives uh, on record. It will, by the end of this week, uh, opposing the surge. And, and is, it, is it correct, the Washington Post report today, that the Democrats have this binding resolution in the wings that would fully fund the president's request for $100 billion on the war, but only with conditions like you have to fully equip the troops, the National Guard and, and reservists 
can only be deployed two uh, times each at most, and the administration right. can use none of the money to build the permanent bases in Iraq. Uh, is that true? And 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 why why not just come out and 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 swing for the fences with that at the beginning? Well. Uh First of all, I think that those are all very interesting, important uh, debates to have. You know, when you look at something like permanent bases there, this is one of the big irritants for people in the region as they think that we're an imperialist power that wants to have permanent bases there. So to get the Congress to say, look, uh, we won't, you know, uh, cut the purse strings tomorrow, but we do want to uh, put some limitations on this and get directly involved in uh, foreign policy making of this country is real important legislation. You can't do everything at once. Uh, and so I'm not sure that there's not some sense of reason on the part of the Democrats here to take this step by step. If it weren't for the surge, the Democrats would be on much, much less firm ground right here. But by, by going for this surge, which is so unpopular, it gives uh, Democrats an opportunity to be against that without being against uh, uh, the troops. So for the Republicans to say, as you just heard them argue, that you know you can't support the troops without supporting the mission is like saying you can't have a democracy, you can't have a debate uh, about whether this country should uh, be at war with another country uh, without you know, showing lack of respect for the troops. So we know that's not true. That's a fallacious argument. The Shattuck point, though, the one that mm -hmm. you mentioned in that letter, is something very important for uh, the Congress to consider, and that's whether the larger consequences of uh, withdrawal from Iraq should be part of this debate. And I would agree here with the Republicans. I think they should debate all of this. And clearly, the larger geopolitical consequences should be part of the argument. But if that debate boils down to, or that argument from Shadegg and Hoekstra boils down to, we can't lose in Iraq, never mind whether or not we are losing in Iraq or we're going to lose in Iraq. Uh, if the surge is opposed by 60% of the country, that's got to include some Republicans. Are these guys going out on their own limb that is, uh, to some degree, more dangerous than the Democrats by just saying, no, 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 no matter what you want, we're not going to listen at all? Well, you know, in the same way that the administration can basically do what it wants here, uh, the Democratic majority in the Congress can do what it wants. So they, you know, uh, Shattuck and Hoekstra can argue to their blue in the face that they, they want the debate to not be about the surge and, you know, not be about the fact that we're losing this war. It's going to be about that. The question is whether it will also take account of some of these uh, larger, uh, what you could call, you know, Churchillian issues about whether we will stand up uh, to terrorism or not. And I think the Democrats should just say, okay, fine, we'll debate both. We'll debate the short-term consequences and if you want the long-term consequences and whether a military approach is the right way to deal with that or whether as the commission, the, the commission, uh, the Hamilton Baker commission recommended, we need a diplomatic initiative. Jonathan Alter of MSNBC and of course of Newsweek magazine. As always, great thanks for your time tonight, John. Thanks, Keith. I close my eyes Only for a moment And the moment's gone All my dreams Pass before my eyes A curiosity Dust in the wind All they are Drop of water in an endless 
Bush's speech last night raises a really interesting question. Have the insurgents acquired missiles? Listen to this. Succeeding in Iraq also requires defending its territorial integrity and stabilizing the region in the face of extremist challenges. See, this this is a setup for broadening this, this war. Here, Bush continues. This begins with addressing Iran and Syria. Bingo. These two regimes are allowing terrorists and insurgents to use their territory to move in and out of Iraq. Now, where have we heard this before? I, let's see. Uh, we're in Afghanistan. We need to go into Iraq, uh, maybe? Iran is providing material support for attacks on American troops. Or did we hear this about uh, Cambodia and Laos when we were in Vietnam? We will disrupt the attacks on our forces. We will interrupt the flow of support from Iran and Syria. And we will seek out and destroy the networks providing advanced weaponry and training to our enemies in Iraq. Mm-hmm. We're also taking other steps to bolster the security of Iraq and protect American interests in the Middle East. Now, that's that's that and protect American interests in the Middle East. In other words, this, this is more than just Iraq. I recently ordered the deployment of an additional carrier strike group to the region. Now, this I, I've on a couple of occasions here. Have asked members of Congress. Okay, he, he's got this. He's got the Stennis going. Is it adding to the Eisenhower that's already there, or is it just a rotation? And everybody's been saying, "Oh, it's just a rotation." That's not what I heard George Bush say last night. We will expand intelligence sharing, and deploy Patriot Air Defense Systems to reassure our friends and allies. Patriot Air Defense Systems. There's nobody in Iraq who has any kind of weaponry that you'd need to use a Patriot Air Defense System against. Which means that he is preparing to fight a war against a country other than Iraq. We will work with the governments of Turkey and Iraq to help them resolve problems along their border. Now that's code for the Kurds, which might be, particularly Turkey, uh, which might be why the, the whole issue with you know invading Kurdistan, northern Iraq, and and taking Iranian diplomats in violation of international law this morning so upset the Kurds. And we will work with others to prevent Iran from gaining nuclear weapons and dominating the region. Mm-hmm. And the and dominating the region is the uh, the magic part there. John in Los Angeles on the line. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Uh, good morning, Tom. Um, I was watching this speech last night, and uh, the points that you're bringing up about him, he, I mean, he constantly me- uh, mentioned Iran and Syria throughout that speech. Yeah, no no mention of Osama bin Laden, by the way.
feel good about the new war with Iran. How can you not have confidence in the crackerjack team that brought you Operation Iraqi Freedom, which foundered and led to Operation Together Forward, which stumbled and led to Operation Together Forward 2, which collapsed and was replaced by the new way forward, the surge now being launched even though nobody's together and everything's going backward? I say bring it on. If a preemptive war on Iraq doesn't work, why not try a preemptive war on Iran in Iraq? Although Tony Snow dismissed the idea of war with Iran as an urban legend yesterday, Condi Rice revealed to New York Times reporters that President Bush acted months ago to parry Iran's ambitions, issuing orders for a military campaign against the Iranian Revolutionary Guard forces sneaking into Iraq. Using diplomatic passports, the agents have been smuggling in sophisticated bomb-making components and infrared trigger devices, which could be used to blow up American soldiers. The move against Iran allows the president and Dick Cheney, who was Natch militating for the surge, to blow off once more the Iraq study group and Congress, to push back rather than make up. James Baker and Lee Hamilton had recommended playing nice with the mad mullahs, which even they acknowledged was a long shot, given that the Bush administration can offer them little except acquiescence in their nuclear weapons program, which is not going to happen. Joe Biden, the new chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, warned Condi on Thursday that Mr. Bush did not have the authority to pursue the networks over the border into Iran or Syria. On Friday, Bob Gates assured the Senate Armed Services Committee that the Iranians they target won't be in Iran. We're trying to staunch a self-inflicted wound. Our failed occupation gave Iran the opening in Iraq we're now trying to shut down. The White House had to admit this week what has been obvious to everybody else for eons, including a list of lame assumptions they embraced during the first years of the occupation. Majority of Iraqis will support the coalition and Iraqi efforts to build a democratic state has now been supplanted by Iraqis increasingly disillusioned with coalition efforts. It's a remarkable moment, W standing nearly alone, deserted by more and more Republicans, generals and Americans, risking it all on a weak read like Prime Minister Maliki. It's impossible to know what W was really thinking as he stiffly delivered his fantasy scheme in the White House library. The whole capital was fraught, but the president may simply have been musing to himself, I'm hungry. I wonder what time the game starts on ESPN. Has anybody read all these books? W always acts like he's upping the ante in a board game where you roll the dice and bet your plastic army divisions on the outcome. This doesn't surprise some of his old classmates at Yale, who remember Junior as the riskiest risk player of them all, known for dropping by the rooms of friends, especially when they were trying to study for exams, for extended bouts of the game of global domination. Junior was known as an extremely aggressive player in the venerable Parker Brothers board game, a brutal contest that requires bluster and bluffing as you invade countries, all the while betraying alliances. Notably, it's almost impossible to win risk and conquer the world if you start the game in the Middle East because you're surrounded by enemies. His gamesmanship extended to sports. He loved going into overtime and demanding that points be played over because he wasn't quite ready. As Graydon Carter recollects in the new Vanity Fair, Gail Sheehy wrote an article for the magazine about W that made this point. Even if he loses, his friends say, he doesn't lose. He'll just change the score, or change the rules, or make his opponent play until he can beat him. W's best friend when he was a teenager in Houston, Doug Hanna, told Ms. Sheehy, If you were playing basketball and you were playing to 11 and he was down, you went to 15. Even if it was clear who was winning, W wanted to go further to see what would happen. 
It was a technique that worked well in Tallahassee in 2000, but not so well in Tikrit. Word is that even as they surge, the Bush team is already working on Plan C, or as they will no doubt call it, the new New Way Forward 2. Secretary General of the United Nations adding his name to the list of Americans now disapproving of how things are going in Iraq. That in an interview with Jim Lehrer of PBS. How the president feels about his own handling of the situation in Iraq, however, is still not truly known. If you were to take an, put me in an opinion poll and said, do I approve of Iraq, I'd be one of those who said, no, I don't approve of what's taking place in Iraq. On the other hand, I do believe we can succeed. Is there a little bit of a broken egg problem here, Mr. President, that... Um there's instability and there's violence in Iraq, sectarian violence, Iraqis killing other Iraqis. And now the United States helped create the broken egg and now says, okay, Iraqis, it's your problem. You put the egg back together and, uh, and, and if you don't do it quickly and you don't do it well, then we'll get the hell out. Yeah, I, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't quite view it as the broken egg. I view it as the cracked egg. Cracked it. Uh, that, uh, where we still have a chance to move beyond the broken egg. And, um, you know, if I didn't believe we could keep the egg from fully cracking, I wouldn't ask 21,000 kids to go in, additional kids to go into Iraq to reinforce those troops that are there. If it's that important to all of us and to the future of our country, if not the world, why have you not, as President of the United States, asked more Americans and more American interests to sacrifice something. The people who are now sacrificing are, you know, the volunteer military, the Army and the U.S. Marines and their families. They're the only people who are are actually yeah. sacrificing anything at this point. Well, you know, uh, 
I, I think a lot of people are in this fight. I mean, they, 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 they sacrifice peace of mind when they see the terrible images of violence on t TV every night. We've got a fantastic economy here in the United States, but yet when you think about the psychology of the country, it is, uh, it is uh, uh, somewhat down because of this war. Now, here in Washington, when I say, people, what do you mean by that? They say, well, why don't you raise their taxes? That's, that'll cause there to be sacrifice. I strongly oppose that. If that's the kind of sacrifice people are talking about, I'm not for it because raising taxes will hurt this growing economy. And one thing we want during this war of terror is for people to feel like their life's moving on. General Casey said yesterday, that the commander said, that um, it may be spring or even summer before we have any signs of success from the new program yeah. from the new new strategy and even then I can't guarantee you that it's going to work that's the general that's the guy who's the commander well I look I mean I, I think that's an accurate I think that's, that's a sober assessment well it's a sober assessment I think he's not going to stand up and make guarantees that uh, that may or may not happen but he is also the general who felt like we needed more troops and he's also the general that believes this is the best chance of working he would also be the general who insisted that he did not and would not need a surge in forces in Iraq, stating it might actually be counterproductive. The same General Casey who might be brought home early from Iraq. Let's call in our own Jonathan Alter, also, of course, senior editor at Newsweek magazine. John, good evening. Hi, Keith. Well, let's start with Mr. Bush and sacrifice, and one is almost speechless at the president's bundle of disconnects sometime. But to equate deaths, just the 3,000-plus American deaths, to a loss of peace of mind at home. Is this the new low-end measure of his tone deafness? Uh, it's pretty low. I mean, for him to claim that that's some kind of sacrifice, just to use a little historical context here, Keith, President Bush is the first president in American history to ever cut taxes in wartime. The whole idea of raising an army in every other war we've had, big and small, Spanish-American, doesn't matter what war you're talking about, raising an army requires raising taxes. Otherwise, you're having your children and your grandchildren pay for your war instead of doing it uh, contemporaneously. And when he says, well, raising taxes would shut down the economy, it's important to remember that the last time taxes were raised in the 1990s, the country, in, in the immediate aftermath, instead of the economy going down, we actually started the largest and most sustained boom in American history. So this, this idea has been slam dunked by recent uh, history. So he, he was talking nonsense there uh, about sacrifice, and then he engaged in doublespeak, Orwellian doublespeak, when he said that General Casey supported this policy and asked for more troops. In fact, General Casey said the exact opposite of that, Keith, on many occasions. He was the one who has said that we need to turn over responsibility to the Iraqis, uh, other, otherwise things will uh, just get worse.
Republicans have found uh, someone new to blame. It's not altogether that new, but they're on the war path now. They've all agreed to their talking points, so they're on, they're on the march. We know when the politicians and the columnists and the commentators all start doing it at the right, same start time. Start saying the same thing. Right. Uh, NBC News reported uh, that the White House basically admitted uh, earlier last week that uh, their new plan is going to be, quote, more of a political decision than a military one, meaning that, you know, we made a decision and it has nothing to do with the commanders in the field or the generals or anything to do with the military. It's that Bush, you know, I don't know why this guy admitted it. It's a rare that a White House administration official would admit this. They're saying it's a political decision. Uh, Bush doesn't want to appear to be loose. Guy might have um, disagreed with that. That's, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. And... um now uh, the Republicans go on the war path. So if it can't, it's not Bush's fault, of course. It's never Bush's fault. It's not the Republican Party's fault who's given him a blank check all along. It's the Iraqis. It, no. Uh, it's a good guess. that That's coming up next. And I'll tell well, you Well, they've why. already been blamed also. Uh, right. But I'll tell you why they're next on the, on the scale it's uh, Congress. in a second. No, because Congress was uh, controlled by the Republicans. It's Don Rumsfeld. <laughs> that would, it's, you're getting closer. You're getting warmer. Uh, it's Karl Rove. Okay, enough. Uh, <laughs> it's the uh, generals. The generals, the beloved generals that they listened to all along, and you couldn't question the generals, you couldn't question the troops, you couldn't do any of that. Now it's all the generals' fault. That seems like a really big mistake to turn on the generals. No, they don't have a choice because the generals have all turned on them and said, look, this thing isn't working. Somebody help us out. For the love of God, don't put any more troops in so they've put the administration in a spot where they're going to have to attack the generals uh, for political reasons because they're bad people and, and you knew that it had to come so here comes senator lindsey graham he says if you come up with a new policy do you let the same people who implemented that old policy come up with a new idea and i was thinking no that's why you fire bush <laughs> but he says nobody's referring to the generals he says i don't think so we never had enough troops to begin with Gee, I wonder whose fault that is. Yeah, that, it was, certainly wasn't Shinseki's or Thomas White's fault, the generals that you fired. Were the generals all of a sudden s s supposed to start questioning the commander-in-chief? I thought that was one of the great oaths that they take, that you never question your great leader. No, what's great about this talking point is Lindsey Graham is turning that on its head. Yeah. He's saying, no, 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 the generals shouldn't be questioning it. It was actually, the problem was that Bush didn't question the generals enough. This was all the generals' ideas. Yeah, because here's the thing. Uh, uh, I know very little about uh, the military. I know a little something about military history, just from the number of, you know, World War II books and World War I books I read, generally about generals and the leaders of men in combat. In general, when you say to them, would you like more troops? They seldom say, no, I'm good. Unless they're looking to get the hell out of there. Right. Right. So in the beginning, what the general said was, for the love of God, give us more troops. And they said, no. In fact, later on here, there's a great quote uh, from uh, 2004 and 2005 uh, from Don Rumsfeld, basically telling Abizade when he asked for more troops, I don't want to hear it. Uh, I don't care what the generals say. Tell all the generals that they're not to ask for more troops. That was back in 2004 and 2005. That was reported not only by the Seattle Times, but by the neoconservative magazine, The Weekly Standard. So even they admit that Rumsfeld told the generals, I don't want to hear you're complaining about more troops. Okay, so now let's go back to and finish up Lindsey Graham's quote. He says, we've never had enough troops to begin with. For two years, I've asked these generals, do we have enough troops? 
and we're fine. Is the army okay? The army's fine. A month or two uh, ago, we found out that the army's broken. Now's the time to start over. If we don't start over and do what we should have done in the beginning, have enough people to win this war, have the Powell Doctrine implemented, we will pay a heavy price. God, that is so dishonest on so many levels. Mm-hmm. That, first of all, invoking Colin Powell, too. Gee, I, I, the way I remember, Colin Powell was within the administration and was telling people what the Powell Doctrine was himself. You see, it's named after. Yeah. Okay. And it's, I don't think Abizade stepped in and said, don't listen to that man. Yeah. I don't want more troops. I want to be undermanned in Iraq. And doesn't, I mean, Lindsay, you know. Doesn't, as, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, as the commander in chief, quote unquote, President Bush, isn't he ultimately responsible for everything that happens overseas? And two, I know that's, I know only that's, when it's, hold on, hold only on. when it's successful. And also, I mean, isn't this just a giant admission that he doesn't know what the hell he's doing? You know, like that he had no, he had no participation in any of this. He, I mean, he left it up to That's every, a great point. he left it up to everyone else. I mean, obviously, I mean, he's ultimately responsible, but, and he didn't question anything that was happening. You know, when Don Rumsfeld came out and said, you know, I want to use my fun new machinery and, and do a lighter, swifter army, he didn't stop to think about it. He didn't stop to think that maybe that was a bad idea and question Don Rumsfeld on it. Well, Jill's he making, had no control over the people that he hired. Just making a great point because you can come back to Lindsey Graham, Senator Graham from South Carolina, and ask him this. So was it that the Bush administration made all these decisions, so you're blaming the generals when you should be blaming the Bush administration, or is it that George Bush is entirely clueless about what's happened in his administration for the last six years, and that for three and a half years that this war's been going on, he didn't even have any idea what was happening and yeah, didn't did, bother to ask the questions. Did he just notice that their that their plan of action didn't work this month? I mean, if, if he had known this two years ago and they had seen going down, they were going down the wrong course. As a commander in chief, don't you question the people that you hire and say, "Hey, maybe this isn't a good idea." I trust the commanders in the field, he said. I trust the commanders in the uh, field, eight, of Eight course. billion times. And uh, Jenk uh, correctly pointed out that and it's broader, of course, than Shinseki and White getting fired in the beginning. Uh, but the, what is more appropriate, and what Lindsey Graham knows, and he's just lying, he's just being deceptive about this for to score political points, is that those who opposed what the administration were doing were either let go, transferred, or but, but, but mainly not invited to participate in the conversation. And furthermore, we reported at length uh, a couple of months ago when generals, a couple of generals retired and said, Don Russell told us before, in, at Central Command, told us before the war, if anybody does post-war planning or even mentions it, you will be fired. Right. If anybody does post-war planning, they will be fired. Do we have enough troops to handle the uh, aftermath after uh, Baghdad falls? You're fired. President Bush heard those ideas, heard those comments, and signed off on them. He approved that, which makes him ultimately responsible. It seems like such a—I mean, the, to have the army and the generals on your side, and to have that support where they where they don't question, so they don't come out and speak negatively about the actions and the decisions that this administration has made, I think has played a huge part in keeping the people's confidence. Now, to turn on the generals, to turn on their army, it seems like it's going to be political suicide to me. Hmm. Well, it's too late. They're already politically dead in the water. But Bush is. But I'm going to get back to the Republican Party and how this is a very big mistake, and Jill's right about that in a second. But I'm the decider. <laughs> yeah, you are indeed, my friend. 
Uh, columnist David Brooks of the New York Times, the so-called moderate Republican. I don't know why anybody would ever say that about him anymore. I understand why they said it before 2000, but he's nothing about it has been moderate for six years. Also goes along with this talking point, wrote a whole article that I read in, in Sunday's New York Times blaming everything on the generals and saying the only mistake George Bush did was trusting the men that seemed to be respected and that had such you know experience and stuff. And, and I guess he shouldn't have trusted these guys and they led him down the wrong path. But he was just too trusting and too good a person to, to question uh, what his commanders in the field were saying. You know what? That makes you a bad leader then. It I, makes you a bad leader. I love that notion that if I'm guilty of anything, it's of loving you too much. You know? <laughs> uh, but it's not over. Now, you, you remember all levels. Now, So you got the newspapers, you got the politicians, and now on television, on Fox News Channel, Fred Barnes says of the generals, The president is not doing what the commanders on the ground have urged, mainly because their policies have failed. When your commanders aren't winning, you bring in new commanders. Yeah, look. The- it's official. Uh, the conservative commentators and politicians have declared war on the army. Uh, so if you have that support the troops uh, ribbon on the back of your car or you ever had it on the back of your car. Take it you, off. No, don't take it off. Keep it on. And you must understand now that the Republican Party does not support the troops. You better vote Democrat. Because yeah, obviously the Republicans don't support the troops. Yeah, I support the troops. Vote Democratic is a bumper sticker that uh, everybody ought to have. I mean, the dishonesty, the, the, the uh, intellectual dishonesty here among these guys mm-hmm. is profound i mean they know about shinseki they know about white they know about the comments that uh, that uh, were revealed by the retired generals about what rumsfeld said about firing anybody who does post-war planning we know for a fact the got generals who said not that we needed twice as many troops as we had but sometimes three times as many troops as we had and then also what's dishonest is lindsey graham saying now finally we're going to do what we should have done in the beginning put in twenty thousand more troops phased in over eight months that's what we should have done in the beginning. We, we, we need three times the number of troops that are there in the beginning. We don't need 20,000 more. Puzzling. It's puzzling. It's deceptive. It's not puzzling. It's deceptive. It's dishonest. Uh, and it is designed, again, uh, with the American people in mind. It is designed to deceive you. The moon was all aglow, and heaven was in your eyes. The night that you told me those little white lies, the stars all seem to know that you didn't mean all those sighs. The night that you told me those little white lies, I try, but there's no forgetting when evening appears. I sigh. But there's no regretting in spite of my tears. The devil was in your heart, but heaven was in your eyes. The night that you told me those little white lies. So... What in the world is going on? Well, it looks to me like Bush is just sitting there and waiting and waiting and waiting until the Iraqi parliament gets around to the business of passing a law that finally codifies into, and I use this term as an oxymoron, Iraqi law, the production sharing agreements for the oil companies at ridiculously unheard of percentages for profit-taking 
out of Iraq's resource known as oil. 20%, no taxes on exporting, no uh, criminal prosecutions. If they, There's no one to hold them accountable for holding to their 20% profits. There's no law for them either. And this is what Bush is waiting for. Because when he says victory is achievable, what he's talking about is the passage of these production sharing agreements at bizarre profits, profit margins for his friends, the oil company. And for Bush, victory is indeed at hand. Any moment now, any moment, by the time I say this, it could have, it could have happened. All they're waiting for is for the law, it's called the hydrocarbon law. For the hydrocarbon law drawn up by the Bush administration and by the UK, which was reported last week in the Independent, which is the more conservative of the newspaper, the Guardian and the Independent of the two big newspapers, uh, you know, that I rely on that are British. The Guardian would be more of a liberal paper. The, the Independent would be more of a conservative paper. And both those papers have reported on these, and the Independent reported that these percentages, that Exxon, BP, Shell, and other carbon cronies of the White House, that these are unprecedented sweetheart deals. Gargantuan profits will go to them when the resources of Iraq, the oil resources of Iraq, have previously been owned by the government of Iraq. It was all about privatization, and it was always about privatization of the oil fields, and it was always about profit-sharing agreement or, or production-sharing agreements, which I call profit-stealing agreements, by force, just shoved down the Iraqis' uh, throats. When the Independent did the reporting on it, they said that they were they couldn't find one Iraqi member of parliament who had even seen the hydrocarbon law. Only reporters, a few, a handful, had seen the hydrocarbon law, and. Anybody that looked at it who knew anything about production sharing agreements said that these were obscene. And that Bush's big oil buddies were raking off up to 75% of all oil profits for an indefinite period up front until they decide, they decide that their infrastructure investments why would they have to make infrastructure investments in a country where 70% of the economy was drilling for and pumping oil? Why would foreigners have to come in and lend a hand with that when that is what Iraqis know how to do? But when they decide their infrastructure investments have been repaid, then they'll only take an unheard of 20% profit. But for an indefinite period of time, these Carbon cronies will get 75% of the oil from Iraq to make money off of. I, this is just grotesque. Grotesque. And that is what victory is for Bush. Now, I don't know why they're calling it the hydrocarbon law. Does that sound better than the we came to steal your oil law? I really don't understand, uh, you know, why more people don't discuss. But I kept saying to you over and over again, somebody's got to ask Bush the question, what is victory? What does it look like, smell like, taste like? And I knew what it was. 
But, you know, for a very long time, a lot of Americans didn't want to believe that their president would sacrifice American lives so that Cheney and the rest of the oil cronies could see an amazing amount of profit by stealing Iraq's oil. Nobody wanted to believe that this was blood for oil. Nobody wanted to believe it. Some of us intellectually knew what it was. Some people were investigating it so hard that they found the maps of how they were going to carve up Iraq's oil-rich uh, resource fields, you know? And the oil in Iraq is so easy to get at. It's not like, I mean, you look at what these oil companies have, you know, tried to do to find new oil. Uh, they have gone, you know, off the coast of the Gulf. They have gone, you know, with her deepness, drilling deep in the sea. They've gone to Alaska, uh, where it's freezing cold, sometimes 120 degrees below zero. Argue with the people of Alaska about the wilderness that they love, which is why they choose to live there. I know some of you in Florida don't get why would anybody want to live in the wilderness, Alaska. But people do, and it is their state. And it is their state resource to do with as they would. But... On and on, they're going through more and more and more expensive ways of finding oil. And the Iraqi oil fields, it's a piece of cake, man. Why? Before we depose Saddam Hussein, Saddam was getting ready to, you know, ex to, to, to go take the oil out of, uh, you know, proven oil fields that were just right below the ground, good old-fashioned oil drilling, you know, right below the ground. And this is what the oil company saw, and they said, we want that. We want that. Even in 99, I think it was, Dick Cheney said... Uh, the future of uh, of the oil industry uh, lays in the Middle East. That's where three quarters of the oil resources are. So that's where we'll go. But they couldn't get in there. So they went in there by force and they used our kids to go get it for them. of anti-war protests is often controversial. Some complain of too much coverage, others of too little. Coverage of last weekend's protest in Washington has been the subject of heated discussion in the liberal blogosphere, not so much because of the placement of stories in newspapers and newscasts, but because of the placement of a source inside some of those stories. That source is Joshua Sparling, an Army veteran who lost part of his leg in Iraq. In the New York Times, he shows up in the 28th paragraph of an article on the march. According to that story, a belligerent protest spat on Sparling, and Sparling spat back. 
What the story didn't report, say critics, is that Sparling was part of an organized counter-protest and that he seems to be a frequent victim of soldier haters, at least according to his own testimony on Fox News, where he's been a frequent guest, along with his father, both of whom have also been guests at the State of the Union in the seats right behind Lynn Cheney. In short, say critics, this guy is not just a veteran gunslinger, but a partisan one. The New York Times is standing by its story. They told us that its reporter witnessed the spitting incident with her own eyes. We take them at their word. After all, haven't we all heard of this kind of thing happening to vets from another unpopular war? Fifteen years ago, sociologist and Vietnam vet Jerry Lemke set out to trace the incidents of spitting stories in the media. He delved into press archives from the 60s and 70s, and what he found was shocking. Not a single first-hand account of a vet getting spit on and close to no published claims by anyone so ignobly victimized. So it really wasn't until about 1980 that these stories began to circulate. They sort of began to pop up like mushrooms in the spring and begin to appear in popular culture. Films like the first Rambo film make reference to uh, Rambo says he was spat on uh, when he came home. It wasn't my war! You asked me, I didn't ask you. And I did what I had to do to win. But somebody wouldn't let us win. And I come back to the world, and I see all those maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. So that's what the spitting story sounded like in 1982. Let's take a listen at what it sounds like now. Here's Josh Sparling on Sean Hannity's radio show earlier this week describing the alleged spitting incident. That was the worst afternoon of of being American that I've ever had in my life, and uh, they actually made me feel ashamed to be a soldier. Almost they 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 kept calling me a baby killer and a murderer, and uh, they said I was a disgrace, and uh, I had blood covering my hands. They don't know how I sleep at night. So here you give your leg for your country. Here you go off and you put your life at risk for your country for the right to these morons to say whatever they want at their little rally there. And the thanks you get for it is just like a lot of vets after Vietnam, you get spit at. You know, that, and that's exactly almost how I felt. I, 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 I thought back, and I'm sure it wasn't as bad as it was back then, but I, I just was like, wow, this is must, must have been what they felt like. Apart from your particular suspicions about this incident, tell me how the story that played out last week resembled the stories that you've been following over the last uh, 35 years. Well, the veracity of the stories themselves is only part of what I'm interested in. Stories like this may be true or they may not be true. Of course, I can't prove that they're not true. Uh, But it's how they play into a kind of betrayal narrative for why we lost the war in Vietnam. And in this case, why it is that we would lose the war in Iraq also. Uh, The allegation here being that it's protesters at home that undermine the morale of the troops. And some Bush administration spokespeople saying that this is lending aid and comfort to the enemy. And both of these are kind of themes in the spitting stories that followed out of the Vietnam War. So that would explain why, for example, the Fox News Channel jumped on the story because it supported their political point of view that uh, protesters are actually undermining not only the morale of the troops, but actually the, the mission itself. Has the spitting myth always been embraced for political means? 
Well, it certainly goes back to other time periods and other wars, and that was one of the things that led me to begin to think about it really as a myth. Probably the strongest instance of it was in Germany after World War I. Germany lost the war, German soldiers came home, and then later told stories, wrote memoirs, wrote diaries about how when they came home they were attacked by civilians. I mean, that's sort of the beginning of what in Germany is known as the stab-in-the-back legend, that uh, Germany lost the war because of home front betrayal, and of course that led then to the scapegoating of Jews and other people that then led up to World War II. So there was that instance after World War I, and then when the French came home after their defeat in Indochina in 1954, again there were stories like this. No spitting stories in France, but in the German instance there were stories of soldiers being spat on, and oftentimes the spitters were women or young girls, just like in the case of many of the Vietnam War stories. Why are we so prepared to believe that these were commonplace incidents in the Vietnam era? Well, it's a face-saving device. It helps construct an alibi, the alibi being that we beat ourselves, that we were defeated on the home front, and that we, this most powerful nation on earth, was not defeated by this small upstart nation of Asian others. It's a dangerous myth because coming out of Vietnam, it kept alive the idea that we could win wars like Vietnam if we just stuck together as a country, if we just stayed solid behind the war effort. I want to ask you about self-fulfilling prophecy or maybe self-fulfilling mythology, but is it possible that as a society we have so internalized the idea of returning soldiers from unpopular wars being spat upon that it actually becomes uh, something that protesters might do thinking that's, you know, the thing to do. Could that be going on right about now? No, I think it's more the opposite. I, I think the internalization of the myth, I think that's a good insight. But I think it's more likely that people returning from Iraq expect to be spat on and that what they expect is what they think happened to Vietnam veterans. So they come home looking for this to happen and looking for a chance to tell the story of how they were spat on when they came home from their war. Okay, Jerry, thank you very much. You're welcome. Jerry Lemke is a sociology professor at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, and author of The Spitting Image, Myth, Memory, and the Legacy of Vietnam.
finally, as promised, special comments on the remarks yesterday by Secretary of State Rice. We already know about her suggestion that the president could just ignore whatever congressional Democrats do about Iraq, just ignore Congress. We know how that game always turns out. Ask President Nixon. Ask President Andrew Johnson. But about what the secretary said regarding the prospect of Congress revising or repealing the 2002 authorization of the war in Iraq. And here we go again. From springs spent trying to link Saddam Hussein to 9-11 to summers of cynically manipulated intelligence through autumns of false patriotism to winters of war, we have had more than four years of every cheap trick and every degree of calculated cynicism from an administration filled with three-card Monty players. But the longer Dr. Rice and these other pickpockets of a nation's goodness have walked among us, waving flags and slandering opponents and making true enemies, foreign and domestic, all hat and no cattle all the while, the overriding truth of their occupancy of our highest offices of state has only gradually become clear. As they asked once in that Avis commercial, ever get the feeling some people just stop trying? Secretary Rumsfeld thought he could equate those who doubted him with Nazi appeasers, without reminding everybody that the actual historical Nazi appeasers in this country in the 1930s were the Republicans. Vice President Cheney thought he could talk as if he and he alone knew the truth about Iraq and 9-11 without anyone ever noticing that even the rest of the administration officially disagreed with him. The president really acted as if you could scare all the people all the time and not lose your soul and your congressional majority as a result. But Secretary of State Rice may have now taken the cake. On the Sunday morning interview show of Broken Record on Fox, Dr. Rice spoke a paragraph which, if it had been included in a remedial history paper at the weakest high school in the nation, would have gotten the writer an F, maybe an expulsion. If Congress were now to revise the Iraq authorization, she said, out loud, with an adult present, quote, it would be say, like saying that after Adolf Hitler was overthrown, we needed to change then the resolution that allowed the United States to do that so that we could deal with creating a stable environment in Europe after he was overthrown. The secretary's resume reads that she has a master's degree and a Ph.D. in political science. The interviewer should have demanded to see them on the spot. Dr. Rice spoke 42 words. She may have made more mistakes in them than did the president in his State of the Union address in 2003. There is obviously no mistaking Saddam Hussein for a human being, but nor is there any mistaking him for Adolf Hitler. Invoking the German dictator who subjugated Europe, who tried to exterminate the Jews, who sought to overtake the world is not just in the poorest of taste, but in its hyperbole, it insults not merely the victims of the Third Reich, but also those in this country who fought it and who defeated it. Saddam Hussein was not Adolf Hitler. And George W. Bush is not Franklin D. Roosevelt, nor Dwight D. Eisenhower. He isn't even George H. W. Bush, who fought in that war. However, even through the clouds of deliberately spread fear, and even under the weight of a thousand exaggerations of the five years past, one can just barely make out how a battle against international terrorism in 2007 could be compared by some to the Second World War. The analogy is weak. It instantly begs the question of why those of the greatest generation focused on Hitler and Hirohito, but our leaders of today seem to have ignored their vague parallels of today to instead concentrate on the Mussolinis of modern terrorism. But in some small, you didn't fail, Junior, but you may need to go to summer school kind of way, you can just make out that comparison. But Secretary Rice, overthrowing Saddam Hussein was akin to overthrowing Adolf Hitler? Are you kidding? Did you want to provoke the world's laughter? 
And please, Madam Secretary, if you are going to make that most implausible, dubious, subjective, ridiculous comparison, if you want to be as far off the mark about the Second World War as, say, this pathetic Holocaust denier from Iran, Ahmadinejad, at least get the easily verifiable facts right, the facts whose home through history lie in your own department. The resolution that allowed the United States to overthrow Hitler on the 11th of December, 1941, at 8 o'clock in the morning, two of Hitler's diplomats walked up to the State Department, your office, Secretary Rice, and 90 minutes later, they were handing a declaration of war to the chief of the department's European division. The Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor four days earlier, and the Germans simply piled on. Your predecessors, Dr. Rice, did not spend a year making up phony evidence and mistaking German balloon-inflating trucks for mobile germ warfare labs. They didn't pretend the world was ending because a tin-pot tyrant could not handle over the chemical weapons it turned out he had destroyed a decade earlier. The Germans walked up to the front door of our State Department and said, we're at war. It was in all the papers. And when that war ended, more than three horrible years later, our troops and the Russian troops were in Berlin, and we stayed as an occupying force well into the 1950s. As an occupying force, Madam Secretary, if you want to compare what we did to Hitler and in Germany to what we did to Saddam and in Iraq, I'm afraid you're going to have to buy the whole analogy. We were an occupying force in Germany, Dr. Rice, and by your logic, we are now an occupying force in Iraq. And if that's the way you see it, you damn well better come out and tell the American people so. Save your breath telling it to the Iraqis. Most of them already buy that part of the comparison. It would be like saying that after Adolf Hitler was overthrown, we needed to change then the resolution that allowed the United States to do that so that we could deal with creating a stable environment in Europe after he was overthrown. We already have a subjectively false comparison between Hitler and Saddam. We already have a historically false comparison between Germany and Iraq. We already have blissful ignorance by our Secretary of State about how this country got into the war against Hitler. But then there's this part about changing the resolution about Iraq, that it would be as ridiculous in this secretary's eyes as saying that after Hitler was defeated, we needed to go back to Congress to deal with creating a stable environment in Europe after he was overthrown. Oh, good grief, Secretary Rice, that's exactly what we did do. We went back to Congress with to deal with creating a stable environment in Europe after Hitler was overthrown. It was called the Marshall Plan. Marshall, General George Catlett Marshall, Secretary of State, the job you have now. Come on! $12,400,000 to stabilize all of Europe economically to keep the next enemies of freedom, the Russians, out and democracy in? And how do you suppose that happened? The President of the United States went back to Congress and asked it for a new authorization and for the money. And do you have any idea, Madam Secretary, who opposed him when he did that? The Republicans! We've spent enough money in Europe, said Senator Taft of Ohio. We've spent enough of our resources, said former President Hoover. It's time to pull out of there. As they stand up, we'll stand down. This administration has long thought otherwise, but you cannot cherry-pick life, whether life in 2007 or life in the history page marked 1945. You can't keep the facts that fit your prejudices and throw out the ones that destroy your theories. If you're going to try to do that, if you still want to fool some people into thinking that Saddam was Hitler and once we gave FDR that blank check in Germany, he was no longer subject to the laws of Congress or gravity or physics, at least stop humiliating us. Get your facts straight. 
use the Google. You've been on Fox News Sunday, Secretary Rice. That network now has got another show premiering tomorrow night. You could go on that one, too. It might be a better fit. It's called, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? That's Countdown. I'm Keith Olbermann. Good night and good luck. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took. But I do know that I love you. And I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. Don't know much about geography. Don't know much trigonometry. Don't know much about algebra. Don't know what a sliding rule is for. But I do know what it one is too. And if this one could be with you, what a wonderful world this would be. Now, I don't claim to be an A student, but I'm trying to be. For maybe by being an A student, baby, I can win your love for me. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took. But I do know that I love you. And I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. You know, we were talking about the the bike ride just before we left. Uh, uh, the whole government gets together. They got uh, dozens of different uh, top-level people. They figure out what would happen if there were simultaneous attacks, how they would respond, uh, you know, real-time if there were simultaneous attacks in 10 cities across the country or more. Uh, this is something, obviously, the government should prepare for. I'm glad they're preparing for it. And they did it completely without the president, and the president at the time was taking a bike ride. You know, some people might say, hey, listen, the president can't get involved in everything, right? Okay, not everything, but the fact that they're doing this exercise and they don't need the president, I think is the telling part. I mean, it's also, of course, funny that he's on a bike ride, and I know he claims to be the decider. But I'm the decider. And uh, and I guess that would mean he makes decisions. My job is to make decisions. But if you're on a bike ride, how do you make those decisions? And how do you become the decider? I mean, do they walkie-talkie to you? Apparently, the man is superfluous. Am I am I overstating it, Ben? I, I, I mean, you're, I, a little and and no. I mean, a little in the sense that obviously, in the handling of uh, crisis management, there are uh, probably a zillion things that need to be planned for that have absolutely nothing to do with the president. There's a plan that should just automatically go into effect. Um, uh, that said, one would think that while the pre- while this plan was going on, that the president might be sort of curious, supervising it, uh, uh, interested in. Hey, what were the you know what are the hiccups? So it's you know we're not getting. Uh, uh, I'm concerned that uh, it looks like this uh, the head of uh, uh, FEMA, you know maybe he needs to be taken uh, underground quickly, you know, so that he's available in a secure location with Dick Cheney in the underground bunker somewhere uh, right away. Because what if he's killed in the attack? What do we do then? 
you know, that kind of, that that sort of stuff. Ben, I think your point is uh, even better than mine. In fact, significantly better than mine. Uh, because if I'm the president and they're doing this major, this is not a small test. Every cabinet level m- member is there. Okay, everybody's on board. Over ninety people, the whole government. This is the preparedness test. Are we ready for a hurricane? Are we ready for uh, a terrorist strike inside the United States? If I'm the president, I kind of want to see what's going on there. I kind of want to make sure that everything's working, and and when it happens, I'll know who's doing what. And one, are they doing the right things during the test? And two, when it happens, hey, I'll know I was there that, you know, the Secretary of State does this and Defense does that and the FEMA guy that. And then the Undersecretary of Interior does this. Like, you would think that any caring president, any thoughtful president would want to know. Yeah, and obviously, I'm sure you look, I, uh, you know, I mean, what they would say, and because they clearly don't have a problem with him, with the world knowing that he was on the bike ride. While this was going on, I'd be like, no, obviously the president's not intricately involved in the planning. This goes into effect without him. And, you know, his uh, chief of staff, Josh Bolton, will uh, was there and supervising the whole thing. And we'll brief the president later. Yeah. Jesus. God help us all. All right. Now, uh, speaking of some of the people that work underneath the president, Army Chief of Staff General Peter Shoemaker, he's retiring. Uh, George Casey is going to take his general Casey is going to take his position. Says that Bin Laden. Who needs to catch Bin Laden? Apparently not you guys, because you're not even trying. Now he explains, I guess, why they're not trying, because they don't care. Uh, Quote, uh, I don't know whether we'll find him. I don't know that it's all that important, frankly. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So Remember, by the way, that the... uh the uh, the former head of uh, General Eikenberry, the former head of our troops there in uh, Afghanistan, who was the head of our troops, uh, head of the American contingent in Afghanistan for, I believe, 21 months, a long time, uh, said uh, last week or the week before, said about 10 days ago that uh, uh, the Taliban is uh, reconstituting, as we've heard from many other people, and that they have uh, the uh, that they're developing the ability to uh, strike and plan and that Al Qaeda is a force uh, in Iraq again, and uh, uh, and and that they are developing the key words that we hear all the time in war, uh, that Al Qaeda is developing a command and control mm-hmm. uh, again. Uh, by the way, I may be pulling through things together. I'm not sure that Eikenberry talked about the reformation of the Taliban. I'm not sure Eikenberry was the one who talked about the reforming of command and control. In fact, it was I saw that on the on the news last week uh, that uh, that Al Qaeda again getting command and control back in the areas of as they're from northern from uh, uh, the mountains of Pakistan uh, to control networks again all over the world. So why the guy who the people who orchestrated September 11th who were redeveloping command and control facilities over their enormously widespread organization that now exists in Iraq, thanks to President Bush, uh, and somehow that getting the head of that organization is not a priority is is dumbfoundingly uh, dumb. (laughs) All right. Well, I have another point on that. But first, let me finish up Shoemaker's comments here, because apparently he doesn't agree with the intelligence. Uh, He says, so we get him. And then what? There's a temporary feeling of goodness. But in the long run, we make him bigger than he is today. You see. You'd make him more dead than he is today. But anyway, or captured. Okay, great. We shouldn't have gotten Saddam either. Yeah, we shouldn't get anybody. We shouldn't get Swahiri. We shouldn't have gotten Zarqawi. We shouldn't. Let's not even try. Let's just come back home. Well, maybe. Okay. They say we're cut and, you know, Democrats are cut and run. They're like, ah, Bin Laden. We don't even need to try. He says he's hiding and he knows we're looking for him. Does he? <laughs> we know he's not particularly effective. Really? That's not what the intelligence indicates. 
I'm not sure there's that great of a return, meaning in capturing or killing Bin Laden. These, I try so hard not to curse on this show. They don't even care. They're not even trying. They pretend that they care about national security and the global war on terror? This guy is number one enemy of the state, the leader of the global war on terror, and they say, who cares? Who cares, Osama bin Laden? What's the return? I got news for you. Why not? You're you're right. It it might not be enough to just capture bin Laden. Let's capture the the top ten guys. That might deal them. That might be a blow. And you know what? Because they're not exactly a gigantic organization. And maybe it would have helped to capture bin Laden. Maybe bin Laden knows some of the other guys. Maybe bin Laden's a coward, and he'll tell us. Okay? I don't know. But why don't you try? No, no. I don't want to hear anything about Iran until Shoemaker and Bush and Cheney and all these other guys say, no, you're right. We didn't catch bin Laden. We suck. We suck terribly. Well, that's We're the a- worst generals, the worst Pentagon, the worst administration in the history of mankind, certainly in the history of, the, uh, of this great country. And so I can't talk to you about Iran. I can't talk to you about any other so-called threat because I never caught bin Laden and I don't care to catch bin Laden. Well, of course, the uh, uh, I mean, part of that is not caring to catch bin Laden. Uh, but part of it, of course, is the is the attempt politically to minimize the fact that they haven't caught it. General Shoemaker, you sicken me and you embarrass me, man. I mean, look, I, oh, support the troops, support the troops. And the troops are the generals and the generals are the commander in chief. Condoleezza Rice is uh, on, uh, you know, this week with George Stephanopoulos. And she's like, well, you know, these Democrats, they don't want to support the troops. I mean, they spent, sent General Petraeus in there, commander in the field, and now they won't listen to him. No, 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 no. You didn't listen to the commanders in the field. That's why you fired General Casey and all these other people. Now you're hiding behind the new set of generals. If you're hiding behind people like this, who don't give a rat's ass about capturing our no- most important target, then I don't care to listen to this guy. If I'm the president, Shoemaker comes in, my army chief of staff comes in and says, Ah, Mr. President, who cares about the guy who killed 3,000 Americans? Who cares about 9-11? Who cares about the leader of the global war on terror? Who cares? Let's not bother catching him. I say, that's an interesting idea, General Shoemaker. You're fired! You're fired! You suck! You're terrible! You're a piece of crap! You're a piece of crap, General Shoemaker. You don't care about Osama bin Laden. All those people who died on 9-11, and you guys want to use 9-11 as an excuse to do everything you want, attack Iran, Iraq and Iran, the people that have absolutely nothing to do with 9-11? Don't you dare talk about 9-11. Please. You don't care about bin Laden? And these guys, they dare, they dare to talk about as if they protect the country, as if they care about 9-11. God, you wonder why... I hate them I, with a loathing, with a white-hot passion, because these guys are sickening. They don't, care, they don't give a damn about anything. They don't give a damn about those people who died in New York or in Washington or anywhere else. It's just their propaganda to make sure that they get whatever they want on their agenda. General Shoemaker, you don't give a damn about capturing Bin Laden. Now step aside, bitch! Uh, yeah, I'm sure the president would say that, except he was not available for the meeting with uh, General Shoemaker because he was out riding a bike.
Thanks for listening, everybody. My apologies for going a little over time today, so I'll be quick and just say that coming up Saturday, March 17th, there's a big anti-war rally here in Washington, D.C. It starts, as I said, March 17th at noon uh, on the mall here in D.C. and marches to the Pentagon. So information on that can be found at marchonpentagon.org. I do plan on attending the event myself, so I hope to see you all there. And you can get more information at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. I'll talk to you real soon. Just a fun fact.